Welcome to the Red Roof Recovery Show, a program to soften the path of recovery from substance and or behavioral addictions. I'm recording this edition of the Red Roof Recovery Show on what would have been the day of my maternal aunt's 81st birthday. Sounds really old, right? We used to talk about that all the time. And it sounds old, of course, unless you're 80, right? I used to think that 60 was old until I turned 59. And then we look at celebrities like Jane Fonda. I remember working out to Jane Fonda's exercise videos in the 70s. And now she's in her early 80s. And her co-star on the comedy series Grace and Frankie, Lily Tomlin. I think Lily is in her early 80s as well. And they certainly seem to be rocking the 80s. And uh, my elderly aunt, though, she did not like being 80 at all. She had been in long-term care for about a year before her death. She was in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Uh, I'm from Cape Breton Island in Nova Scotia. So we really missed being in living in the same province. And I was always cognitive of that separation with her. So I was very uh, grateful that we had managed to mend our relationship because we had a, an estranged re relationship for a long time. So we used to speak a few times a week over that course of the year that she was in long-term care. And we, as we said, as I said, I repaired that relationship with her. So we did enjoy many treasured years of kinship, and I was grateful for that. And she and I had very different ideas. We were from a different generation. So, of course, we had different ideas about pretty much everything. But we did manage to grow beyond those differences. She grew to become a constant source of inspiration, love, encouragement, and support for me. And I'm definitely going to miss her presence in my life. And having differences with people, what I want to talk about today on the Red Roof Recovery Show is the differences that we have with people especially family members, right? I mean, that can be um, a bone of contention for everyone. I, I don't speak to anyone who doesn't have a family dysfunction that they want to share with me. So that can be one of the most challenging things that we deal with on this stage of life. I've grown to appreciate my favorite Shakespeare quote. You'll hear it from me very often. It is, all the world is a stage and men and women merely players. So as a player on this stage of life, I've grown to accept that my addictions to drugs and alcohol, they are what they are. They're addictions to drugs and alcohol. It's something for me that has no cure. It's something that I have learned to live with. It doesn't make me any less a person. I am not my addictions. It doesn't make me defective. My character is not defective. I am not my addictions. It makes me a human being a fallible human being, just like the rest of all my fellow fallible human beings out there. I don't think addiction is about drugs and alcohol at all. At least it wasn't for me. It's the absence of self. I often describe this absence of self like a hole in my soul, a hole that left me with an empty feeling. And it was that empty feeling that often created my inability to not only love others, but also the inability to love myself. I think addiction recovery peels back the painful layers that life plasters on us. I think addiction recovery is a process. It has been for me. I mean, my journey started in 2009 when my husband and I were living in Spain. I checked myself into a 30-day rehab 
That was in 2009, quite, quite a long time ago. But those early days of recovery, my emotions were raw. And then once I became physically sober, becoming emotionally sober is a whole different ballgame. Because when you think about it, we're born with a nationality, we're born with a race, we're born with a name, and oftentimes we're born with a religion. And then we spend our life living up to a fictional identity. And then we're going to learn to emulate our life, and we do that through our family, our environment, our culture, our language, and our religions, our friends, our teachers, our co-workers. We even learn to emulate life through mainstream media with shows like Grace and Frankie. I love that show. And that show finally made it okay to talk about and accept sexuality with all its nuances. The empty feelings that I filled with drugs and alcohol are now, now filled with honesty, connection, and a lot of hard work. Some of that work becomes easier when I immerse myself in things like this book from one of my mentors, Dr. David Burns in California. This is my other Bible. It's called Feeling Good. It's the new mood therapy, the clinically proven drug-free treatment for depression. I talk about this so often, people ask me if he's paying me for these endorsements. <laughs> no, he's not. He's just a wonderful man, an extraordinary doctor, psychiatrist, uh, who shares his work and is very encouraging of my work. So I do talk about him a lot. He's one of the key players in the development of cognitive behavioral therapy. So let me get back on topic here um, with emotions. That's what we're talking about today. And I think it's really important to talk about emotions. Um, I think it's important for me to talk about my emotions in my addiction recovery journey and how important it is for us, me, especially to learn how to manage my feelings, my emotions. As I mentioned, my recovery journey started in 2009, and it has not been a linear journey by any stretch of the imagination. That 30-day rehab stay that I did on mainland Spain near Seville, it was based on the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous. AA, without question, saved my life. And then a program called SMART gave me my life back. SMART is an acronym. It's self-management and recovery training. And the emphasis, of course, is on the self-management. I think there's great power in knowing that the only thing that we can control in life is ourselves. SMART uses the tools and techniques of a few things. Cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. Also, rational emotive behavior therapy, REBT, and that's pretty much what it says. It's turning rational analysis inward. It teaches me to question everything. And also MET, motivational enhancement therapy, all of which basically encourages people in recovery to do four things. It's the four pillars of recovery. Develop and maintain the motivation to abstain from addictive behavior. Number two is learning how to handle the urges that come with abstaining from addictive behaviors. Number three is learning how to manage our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And number four is finally learning to live a healthy, balanced life, whatever that looks like for you, because we are all different. 
We're all individuals. What works for me may not work for you. So what I love about SMART and cognitive behavioral therapy in general is that you can customize the program because there's literally, literally hundreds of things, therapies, tools that you can use in your recovery journey. The key is to keep looking for something that resonates with you, something that has that psychic click for you. So just keep looking. One of the tools of CBT is called the hula hoop. You will hear me talk about it a lot. It's one of my favorites. It's a metaphor for setting boundaries, something that was very difficult for me to do early on in my recovery. And I'm still challenged by it, certainly in, in certain circumstances, in certain relationships. But the hula hoop metaphor helps me to stay focused on what is within my control. It's a tool that helps me handle the stresses of everyday life, the stress that comes from heightened emotions, those emotions like anger and fear and loss and grief, disappointments, emotions that all of us deal with every single day. Better stress management is a proven way to deal with urges and to succeed at long-term recovery. So let's talk about how the hula hoop tool works in cognitive behavior therapy. We're going to first start by recognizing that we can spend a lot of time and energy trying to affect the outcome of things that are beyond our control, beyond our boundaries, beyond our hula hoop. You remember the hula hoop, right? From the 70s. I think it came back again in the 90s. It's that round plastic tube that we uh, swing around our hips. Good exercise if you can keep it around your hips. So that's the metaphor that we're using, that plastic circle, that ring, that hula hoop. So think of the hula hoop as your little dome of control. That's how I look at my hula hoops. But everybody has a hula hoop, right? So we've got a heck of a lot of hula hoops in the world, and they're all crashing into each other all day long. And inside that hula hoop, all the things we can control, things like our body, our thoughts, our opinions, never a shortage of opinions, that's for sure, our values, our dreams, our ambitions, and our actions. I often use the equation of the words, thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and then results. So it all starts with words, I think. When we use more positive words, and I was fascinated to learn that our English language dictionary actually has three times as negative as many negative words to positive words. So we actually have to work three times as hard to even formulate more positive thoughts. So if it starts, for me, the awareness that it starts with my language, how I'm using my language and my words, then if I'm using more positive words, that's going to feed, for me, more positive thoughts. And those positive thoughts are going to feed more positive emotions, positive feelings, and then those positive moods are going to equate into more positive behaviors. Outside the hula hoop are the things we cannot control. Basically, everything else, everyone else. We can't control what people are thinking, what they're doing or not doing. And I was really shocked to realize how much time I was spending in other people's hula hoops. I was constantly worried about whether or not I was offending people, disappointing someone, making someone angry, 
Do they like me? Why don't they like me? I spent my days just crashing into the hula hoops of other people, overstepping my boundaries and worrying about things that were simply out of my control. Getting into other people's business, and I did it with my elderly aunt all the time. It was part of what created the dysfunction in our relationship. I actually went to stay with her in Halifax for a week. I wanted to, she was very ill for a long time, and I wanted to help her remain in her apartment for as long as possible. I set up all the services for her, things like Meals on Wheels, uh, VON visits, cleaning visits, any social service that was available that I could arrange for her, I did it during my stay with her. Every day, though, I would say to her, you need some exercise. Let's go for a walk. She didn't want to go for a walk. She was chronically depressed. She was steeped in grief from the loss of her mother and her sister, my mother, who had become her best friend. They even lived in the same apartment building for years. She was also really close to my father. And all of those people passed away within two years of each other. So there was a huge hole of emptiness in her life for her that she filled with cigarettes. She was a chain smoker. And she was also addicted to opioids. And she had become addicted to painkillers over the course of years. I think addiction is a progressive disease, and I've watched it happen with people. They'll start off with, uh, you know, a Tylenol 2 or a Tylenol 3 to overcome some temporary pain, and then that graduates into something stronger. And over months and years, uh, the addiction just just sinks in to the DNA. So she became addicted to painkillers, and she was just not capable of helping herself, much to my chagrin. It was very frustrating for me, and I thought she was just unwilling. But of course, depression, as I know, is a deep pit. And unless you've been in that deep pit, it's, it's hard to relate to. So she was in that big, deep pit of depression, and even my frustration trying to control her hula hoop, get her, getting her to have some more exercise, going for a walk, I couldn't even get her out of her apartment to walk to the, the trash compactor on the same floor. So she was deep in depression. And it was early days in my own addiction recovery that I made that visit to Halifax. So I had not even developed my compassion and empathy for someone who seemingly just wanted to stay stuck in that destruction that I was witnessing with her. Years later, I even offered her an apartment to rent next door to mine so I could be of some assistance to her. But she refused. She wanted to stay in her own surroundings with her own things and her own depression and addiction. She was hopeless. And it was not an easy thing for me to accept hopelessness. I watched it with my own mother. The addiction just spirals into depression and hopelessness. I had managed to claw my way out of that pit of depression and hopelessness. So I thought, why couldn't she? Why couldn't my own mother? It was infuriating to me. We had many arguments about her unwillingness to help herself. In the end, though, I had to decide if it was worth creating yet another barrier in our relationship. Could I actually make myself do the work to accept her just the way she was? Something that I had been unwilling to do in my own relationship with my mother. 
And that was a deep regret that I carried with me for a very long time, something that I'm sure contributed to my own addictions. So when I decided to get sober and became immersed in materials that were helping me to abstain from my addictions and overcome my own depression, the depression that I was suffering suddenly became lighter. It didn't disappear. Definitely not. It's still with me. But it's easier to carry now. And then I learned to stay out of other people's hula hoops. I remain inside my own hula hoop. It's a very powerful visual for me to imagine that hula hoop around my waist and keeping it balanced in my life. And that's all I can control. And there's some great power in knowing that the only thing I can control is myself. So now I'm better at managing my thoughts, emotions, my behaviors. I'm less concerned with other people's thoughts and actions and behaviors. And when I stay focused on my own core values, my own aspirations, I make better progress on things that are important to me. When I stay out of other people's hula hoops, I actually affirm their right to have their own feelings make their own decisions, say their own words, think their own thoughts. It's kind of a respect for them, I like to think. And now I can extend that compassion and empathy for people who are in that pit, feeling hopeless. And I think my strength comes from sharing my experience, strength, and hope with people who are trying to claw out of that pit of depression and hopelessness. So that's not to say there's never going to be any disagreements with loved ones or friends or coworkers. That would be a lovely world, wouldn't it? You may actually be absolutely right in your position sometimes on some disagreements, but it doesn't matter if you're right. Being right about something that's beyond our control is as good as being wrong about it, isn't it? <laughs> it's all about the boundaries that we need to draw between our lives and the emotional well-being or and emotional well-being and others. The hula hoop reminds me to let go of things I can't control and instead focus on the things I can control. So that's one of the key aspects of cognitive behavior therapy is learning to control what's within my hula hoop and let go of what I cannot control. Dr. David Burns talks about the three principles of cognitive therapy. His website, I highly recommend it, feelinggood.com. I love listening to his podcasts. I'm always learning something from him. So the first principle is our positive and negative feelings do not result from what happens in our lives, but rather from our thoughts about what's happening or what has happened. When I think of my elderly aunt and the chronic depression that she suffered, it was always somebody else's fault. And I witnessed that with my mother as well. She blamed her father for everything that was wrong in her life. And my elderly aunt blamed her ex-husband for everything that was wrong in her life. And it's devastating to have a long-time marriage, especially. I think it was 18 years she was married. She had two children with him. And on the surface, everything seemed fine. But she learned that for years, he was deceptive and having affairs. Devastating when you've been with somebody for that length of time to realize that you've been lied to and deceived. It's, uh, it's something that a lot of people just can't even 
recover from a lot of times. So for me, the cognitive behavior therapy, appreciating that the only thing I control is myself, and it's not what happens to me, but what hap- what, how I react to what happens to me, is key in helping me stay focused on my recovery. Number two principle of cognitive therapy, depression and anxiety result from distorted, illogical, misleading thoughts. What you're telling yourself is simply not true. And number three, when you change the way you think, you can change the way you feel. Now, this can usually happen rapidly and without drugs. And I'm not trying to oversimplify uh, mental disorders like schizophrenia. Of course, um, there's very little, still very little understanding around some mental disorders, and they do require medication. However, for me, in my chronic depression, when I concentrate on what I'm thinking, the way I'm thinking, and think to myself, well, how can I reframe that thought? Can I ask myself some questions? Is it true? Is is it helpful? Then I can reframe the thought to be more helpful to me. So it's all about directing that rational analysis inward, questioning everything. This first idea goes back at least a couple of thousand years to the teachings of Greek Stoic philosophers. Although the idea that our thoughts create all of our feelings is very basic, and enlightening, many people still don't really get it. And this even includes lots of therapists who wrongly believe that our feelings result from what's happening to us. So I get to talk to a lot of people every day about the therapy that they have tried. And a lot of people just throw their hands up in despair and say, no, I've tried that. It doesn't work. Well, I always encourage people to keep trying because there's always something that will resonate with you if you just keep looking. I remember in my recovery, I was given a book as homework, and it was Louise Hay, founder of Hay House Radio. And when I initially looked at the book, I thought, I rolled my eyes. I thought, this is not going to help me. What's an old lady going to teach me about recovery? (laughs) Well, she was um, probably younger than I at the time when she wrote that book, That You Can Heal Your Life. And it was part of my homework. So I did read it because I was required to. It was part of the recovery, the 30-day rehab. So I started to read You Can Heal Your Life by Louise Hay. And I have to say, about halfway through, it started to resonate with me. She was what I needed at the time. It was like a warm, soft hug from a mother that I had been, you know, a mother I didn't have. I was abandoned early childhood by by my own mother. So Louise Hay resonated with me, not right away, But because I stuck with it, she clicked with me. Psychologically, there was something about her when she said, you're worth it. You are worth loving yourself. It's one of the hardest things I had to do in my recovery in my life is learning how to love myself. So I did. I took her advice. I believed her when she said, you can do this. You're worth it. So she does something called the mirror exercise. I encourage you to check it out on YouTube, the second most watched medium in the world now. Just do a search for Louise Hay, the mirror exercise, and try it for yourself. Let me know how that works for you. A lot of people don't like it. They say, no, I can't look myself in the mirror in the eyes. Some people have said, I couldn't look myself in the eyes, 
But I took a picture of myself as a child and I put that on the mirror and I speak to the child. That's a great idea, trying to speak to the inner child. It's fantastic. So we're coming to the end of our time together. Thank you so much for spending your 30 minutes with me. I greatly appreciate it. Some uh, shameless self-promotion. My second book is now available on Amazon.ca, Daily Wisdom from My Philosopher Dad. It's in honor of my father. And it's like a little journal, right? Every day it has a little motivational, inspirational thing. And uh, you can write your thoughts, your contemplations. And I wrote this book for a few reasons. I wanted it to be part of a self-help series in honor of my father because he was an extraordinary man and I wanted his legacy to be forever. So Daily Wisdom from My Philosopher Dad contains a lot of my father's wisdom together with my own life experiences and the timeless wisdom that has been passed to me from countless mentors like <laughs> David Burns. So remember to talk to yourself like you talk to your best friends. There is great power in knowing that the only thing that we can control in life is ourselves. I want to leave you with the thoughts to live fully, laugh often, love always, stay mindful. May the force be with you. And remember, you are the force. And thanks so much to Russell Allen Scott for this fantastic theme music. This is Greatest Bravery from Russell Allen Scott. Thanks, Russell.